Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Greg Pickett. Hey, today we are uh, really privileged to have Richard Abalafia on with us. Um, For anybody who knows Richard, he is the man in commercial business and defense. Um, Just one of the world's premier analysts with, uh, with the Teal Group. And uh, I'm thrilled to have him on. So, hey, Richard, how are you? I'm great, Craig. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are absolutely, I love reading your, your articles in uh, Aviation Week. Um, Thanks. I know you're a, uh, you're a known entity to Wall Street Journal, and they're always reaching out to you for your expert advice. So uh, I thank you for, uh, for being on. Um, good to have you. My pleasure. Where do, let's start with commercial aviation. We've had a lot of uh, 2019 has been a pretty uh, pretty exciting year with uh, with the Max. Um, a lot of stuff happening internationally. You know, wide body aircraft. Do you have people pulling back from wide bodies going to nor- more narrow bodies? Where do you where do you see the trend? Where do you see the trends going? Yeah, there are so many interesting things to talk about in the commercial jetliner space. Um, and yes, uh, I would use the term exciting year. Chinese blessing and curse me, you live in an exciting year. Uh, I, you know, one of the strangest aspects of it is, I, I'll, I'll start off with one very odd theme, which is the complete breakdown of cause and effect. You know, you look at the history of this business, and it's a very simple process. GDP drives, you know, economic growth and GDP drive passenger traffic demand, which, of course, drive airline orders for jets, which ultimately impact deliveries. Not necessarily the same, but, you know, obviously that's a, that's a, pretty, good, uh, that's a pretty good long-term indicator. And here we've got this environment where there's nothing wrong with GDP. I mean, there are intimations and concerns about global growth and trade and all this other stuff, but GDP is held up just fine. Um, and yet passenger traffic has suffered a serious blow after February, and this is after a remarkable 10-year run uh, of above-trend numbers. You know, we matter of fact, last year was 6.5% uh, year-over-year growth in revenue passenger kilometers. The year before that, 2017, of course, was 7.6%. Mm-hmm. Long-term sustainable is five, five and a half, somewhere in that zone. Um, and then all of a sudden in March, you had this nasty downshift to about 4%, which is where we've been up and down uh, for the year since. Um, but it, that doesn't appear to be driven by GDP. It, it, part of it might be a capacity constraint thing. Part of it might be concerns about global trade. Part of it might be an unusual canary in the coal mine moment where people are thinking there's going to be a downturn, so they're flying less. It's hard to know what's going on, but predictably, of course, orders have, uh, have collapsed. The Dubai Air Show provided a welcome respite from that, but otherwise numbers were not good. And uh, meantime, in a, continuing the complete breakdown of cause and effect, deliveries 
uh, have held up, or in the case of Boeing, production has held up right. because they're not delivering the jets. But uh, it's this does not look anything like the normal pattern of events you've seen in the jetliner business for for many years now. You got you know between Boeing, you know, five thousand Maxes in backlog, Airbus about the same. I mean, ten thousand airplanes in backlog is you know you know two what what you know fifty a month per customer. Say you know say Boeing is delivering the Max. They're going to deliver 50. Airbus is going to deliver 50 narrow bodies. It's a, you know, 100 a month. Um, you got 100 months of backlog, if I do the math right. Um, yeah, can we, yeah, does, a, does a dip in orders you know, matter that much to these guys with, uh, with that type of uh, you know, backlog inventory? Yeah, good question. Two things to think about. One is that these wonderful numbers in the narrow body front are kind of cold comfort for the folks who build twin aisles. And historically, twin aisles are a source of uh, considerable profit. Um, but rates are just under pressure across the board, aside from basically two programs, the 787, and even there, there's been a bit of a slight downshift, and the A350. Everything else is under very heavy pressure. So it's become a very spotty market despite the health of the single aisle front. Another is that, yeah, 50 sounds like a lot, but both Airbus and Boeing, frankly, just want to keep pulling levers to bring in money. So the current ambition at Boeing is to get to rate 57. The current ambition at Airbus is to get to rate 63 with talk to suppliers about perhaps even rate 70 and maybe even beyond. So in other words, um, it's never enough just to rest on your laurels and flatten out, but people want to keep moving. So from that standpoint, yeah, you know, the hit to orders has been, uh, has been noticeable. So let's go away from wide body and narrow body a little bit. Let's go a little bit smaller. The A220, you know, by all, you know, by all means, a really good airplane, you know, technically a really good airplane, really efficient. Seems like it's got some ability to, to grow into some different routes. Is it going to be a, is it ever going to be a great seller? You know, I think you're getting there, uh, very definitely. I've always been a big fan of what was the C-Series. It's just that, you know, frankly, from the standpoint of Bombardier, when they launched it a decade or so ago, it was an act of suicide. There was absolutely no way they can, could compete. This, as you know, is not a business based upon the best. It's, the based, it's based upon production costs. Right. And theirs were miserable compared to Airbus and Boeing. So making this an Airbus product and now subject to Airbus's tough supply chain negotiations has produced an aircraft that is competitive. And you're starting to see some very nice sales, most notably this year, JetBlue and Moxie and, and of course, the Delta Order. And, and I think you'll see a lot more. You know, I mean, basically, it was driving Bombardier into the ground. They had to get rid of it. They can never hope to do more than four or five per month. It looks like now Airbus won't have a problem getting to 10 per month with that program and possibly even beyond. It's, uh, and from the standpoint of the, the traveling public, you know, I think it offers a lot of potential for new route development. Um, thin, medium-sized routes, even transcon ones. It's a really nice aircraft. And what's going to be interesting to see um, when the Embraer Boeing deal is finally concluded, probably in the first quarter of the coming year, whether exactly the same process will repeat itself with the Embraer E2 series, which will have a lot of similar capabilities, and Boeing will, of course, apply its own 
supply chain muscle uh, mm-hmm. to getting the cost there down. That's going to be interesting to watch as well. Yeah, no, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Now, is you going to see the same, uh, you know, if the A220 starts to get some legs on it and some traction, you start to see the same thing on the E2, which is also, you know, quite frankly, a, you know, pretty successful, you know, techn- technologically wise, it's a, you know, it's a good jet. Oh, yeah. I mean, Embraer always does a really great job. It's just that, again, this is an industry built on scale, and it's very tough for small niche producers to compete. Uh, to their credit, they realized what was going on when Bombardier went into uh, Airbus's hands with its big jets, and um, they realized they had no choice. And uh, we're seeing that unfold now. Well, that was, you know, you, know, you go back, you know, and I was, I was at Bombardier when the, when the C-Series was announced. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was less, a, you know, yeah, Boeing and Airbus did a great job boxing, you know, boxing Bombardier in. It was it had very little to do, I think, with Bombardier. Otherwise, like you said, the supply chain costs. But I think Boeing and Airbus looked at this thing and said, "Hey, it could be a threat." And EJet as well. And they just did a good job. You know, they just did a good job boxing it in with uh, the with the uh, the three nineteen, uh, the three twenty, and the you know the seventh you know, the variants of the seven thirty seven. Um, yeah, it gave Bombardier nowhere to you know really nowhere to maneuver to. Yeah, uh, and it was it looks set to end in tragedy because it is a really good jet. Bombardier did a great job designing it. Uh, you know, they they actually I would actually argue that it's one of the best examples of doing the the right technology trades. You know, whether it's the aluminum alloy or the CFRP wings, or you know, or, or the geared turbofans, everything they did about it um, in terms of its design process was was dead on. It's just that, yeah, as you say, they were completely boxed in by some very aggressive pricing by Airbus and then Boeing. What do you think, you know, obviously the MAX has been taking the headlines this year. Um, tragedy all around, you know, you know, for Boeing, for, you know, obviously the, the, the victims of the, how do you think this affects, you know, FAA certification, how airplanes are designed. I mean, you know, as we were talking before we came online, you know, in the United States and Europe, we're spoiled. We have some unbelievably good pilot training. People are around airplanes. Pilots tend to be around airplanes you know, all their lives. Um, yeah, but I don't think that, that that capability is really taken to many parts of the world. How do yeah. you think it, how do you think airplanes are now, you know, what, what happens next? Yeah, that's that's a big question, and there's no question that this basically means that the Boeing philosophy, where the uh, the pilot is ultimately in charge and and whatever else is is giving way towards, or will continue to give way towards more of an Airbus system of uh, higher level of automation and computer control. You know, and 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 of course, you know, to look at it um, sort of uh, in between, you know. I think one reason a lot of pilots might be a bit upset at Boeing right now is because they regard the MCAS system as sort of the the back door to a kind of a hybrid fly-by-wire control system. Um, and I, I understand that, And uh, but it, it probably means that Boeing designs in the future are going to go all the way and just as be, and be just as uh, you know heavily automated as uh, as the Airbus system for for better or worse. No, I, I think the other the other question you're 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 pointing to is, uh, well, the time and resources necessary for certification in a world where there are fewer, uh, you know, ODAs and DERs and all these other acronyms we've we've grown used to, um, you know, basically a little bit 
less industry uh, control over the certification process. And no doubt it's going to take more time. And I think even more importantly, it, it will be a while before the global system of aircraft certification reciprocity is fully restored. Right now, everyone understandably wants to, you know, basically redo everything that the FAA is doing and have complete control of that process. And um, it, it might be some time before they completely uh, trust them to have the full resources and uh, wherewithal to uh, to have a process that is is simply uh, stamped by uh, by their own people rather than replicated. Does the ODA system go away or does it change remarkably? I think there's probably going to be a greater level of inspection and oversight for it. Uh, I hope it doesn't go away. I mean, it just it just makes a lot of sense um, just because these are complex systems. And frankly, very often only the contractor, uh, you know, can can really understand. It just makes more sense to have people who can parachute in and, and say, hey, uh, we want a full explanation of everything going on here. Um, you know, with the ability to uh, to punish if if corners are being cut, you know, I think one of the most um, interesting aspects of this, and I would hope it's a, a broader conversation in Washington. I have a, I have my doubts that it will be, but you know, we've had you know we had the Reagan Revolution, which in many ways was terrific, you know, deregulation. But did we go too far? You know, did we keep deregulating to the point where? You know, not to, not to make any kind of equivalence here, but, you know, for the point where, well, drinking water in Flint, Michigan, yeah, whatever, who cares? Did we go too far with deregulation? And, uh, you know, you had an administration that came in with the mantra that we're going to destroy two rules that exist for every new one we create. You know, that there might be a place for that. But in the world of, say, air safety, that's completely toxic, as the saying goes those rules were in fact written in blood. Uh, I think there needs to be a different mindset in Washington. Uh, and we've got to be more careful because no matter how great the Reagan revolution was, you can go too far. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, uh, and, and, and you're absolutely right. It's all written in blood. Um, you know, and you know, the, the, but the level of safety we see, I mean, granted the two max, the max crashes, earlier in the year, but you think about in the United States, you know, the, you know, one, you know, one fatal incident on a Southwest airliner when the engine let go, you know, that, uh, you know, kind of a fluke, but the, but the industry has seen, I mean, unbelievable levels of safety over the last decade. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, that's exactly right. And I am concerned that maybe we're seeing, uh, a slight overreaction there because, you know, you look at that, that's precisely at Southwest. Two things about Southwest. Obviously, that was the only onboard fatality since uh, they were created in 1978, I believe. Uh, an incredible safety record. And as Herb Geller always used to say, they compete with the family car. And every day, a, a well, a the equivalent of a 737-200 is destroyed on the nation's roads in terms of passenger right. day. In other words, Southwest saved untold thousands of lives uh, with its operating philosophy. The idea that we should have to bear these huge costs because of this one, yeah, real fluke. I mean, there are 7,000, 737 NGs out there. I think this happened once. You know, are inspections possibly warranted? Yeah. Major redesign? I, I, that might be going too far. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely, you know, I absolutely agree with you. And, um, you know, you think about rotor burst protection, things that have been done, designed in airplanes and, um, you know, once again, the, the level of certification, the amount of safety that's designed into the airplanes, um, you, you know, I just don't think, I don't think the public really understands the, the feeding and care that these airplanes are designed to with safety in mind first. Um, That's right. You know, and 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 you know, yes, you know, Boeing's taking a beating on the Max, but I've I've always been somewhat of a defender on them too. I'm like, hey, look, it, it, there's 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 never one there's never one cause of a mishap. It's always a chain of events. That's and exactly let's, right. Let's quit pulling. Let's quit pointing fingers and shouting at people, and let's you know pull back and say, all right, what what needs to change on the whole thing? Let's fix it, and and we'll continue to you know we'll continue to move on and. In you know, in a year or so, this will all be behind us, um, and and the world will be good again. I think that's exactly right. And you know, as somebody who travels all over the world, I, you know, in a year, I won't be at all concerned about flying in the Max. Uh, I think they're going to get it right. I think they've probably already gotten it right. It's just a question of getting a certification sign off. Um, I I, I got to tell you, I am a little concerned about flying in some parts of the world where maybe all the lessons aren't being learned in terms of maintenance, in terms of uh, pilot procedure, there are reasons to be concerned. Um, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I, I honeymooned in Indonesia many, many years ago and um, reading that New York Times story about, uh, about Lion Air and it's, uh, it's, it's record just a couple of days ago in the Times was, was frankly chilling. Yeah. Will those lessons be learned and will they be acted upon to the same extent that Boeing's MCAS will be acted upon, uh, that's a really big question that people should be asking. You know, I, I think what really angers me the most, and, and it does anger me, is a couple of years ago on a, on, a, on a beautiful, clear day, you know, an Asian aircraft fly, you know, does an un, tries to do an uncoupled approach into San Francisco. You've got 40,000 hours of collective flight time in the cockpit, they hit the uh, the retaining wall, the seawall, and the first question they ask the pilots is, you know, did you guys know how to do an uncoupled approach? And the answer was no. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I, I you know, as much as Boeing has been skewered um, for the design on the Max, I think that the world needs to wake up and say, wait a minute, you know, pilot training, if we've got universal design standards to meet, for aircraft safety, there needs to be universal training requirements and cockpit, you know, uh, uh, you know, levels of experience in the cockpit across the world. And and maybe it's a maybe it's a you know a, a universal standard that everybody has to meet if it's a fifteen hundred hour rule or whatever. Um, you know, maybe that needs to be addressed. I, I completely agree, and it is uh, it is a bit concerning. You know, the big tragedy of the previous decade, of course, was uh, Air France 447 out of Brazil. And uh, anyone who's read uh, William Langwish's uh, rather excellent piece in The Atlantic about that flight back about five years ago, I think, mm -hmm. uh, it really shows that, I mean, even for a first-quality carrier like Air France and a highly automated system like the A330, uh, tragedy can still result from people not quite recognizing what's going on. And, and it's, it's, it's experiences like that that should be teaching us about the importance of pilot training for contingencies like that. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And, and once again, I think there's yeah, just maybe just a push for a universal standard should, sure. you know, yeah, should be become a priority. Let's um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, the Green New Deal. Um, English lawmakers now want to ban business jets. Um, Bruges, Belgium wants to ban tourists now. And uh, I think the same could, where else? In Croatia, another town said the same. You've got obviously a lot of, you know, uh, low-cost carriers in Europe. Um, yeah, everybody's talking about you know, jets and their pollution. How how does that affect where we are in ten years? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I sometimes uh, wake up and think that's the the biggest single threat, really. I mean, not just uh, the ecological part, but municipalities pushing back against tourism, sort of an anti-tourism culture, whether it's in Barcelona or Venice or, or, or Dubrovnik, as you say. I mean, any number of places that are rethinking. And I sometimes wonder whether I've had the privilege of spending much of my adult life in sort of the golden era of cheap and easy international travel. Um, I, I wonder about that. In terms of the green aspect, you know, I think we, we just got to push back that we're the most uh, efficient and self-policing form of transport ever designed uh, by humans. I mean, we get better every year by about 1% on average or more. Um, no, yeah, and that's because we have to, you know. <laughs> if one airline improves its efficiency, somehow uh, all the other ones have to copy. Otherwise, they, uh, they'll quickly be outpriced and outprofited and they'll die. So we get better and better and better. Trucking doesn't do that. Shipping doesn't do that. Nobody does that except for the aviation industry. And uh, we're still a very small percentage of global emissions. I hope we're not penalized just because we're seen as completely discretionary. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, you know, my, you, know, you just see you know, the, the advent of flight shaming, <laughs> airplane shaming now, flight shaming. I'm like, wait a minute, I can fly anywhere I want in Europe. For, for 50 euros each way on uh, on Ryanair. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, if there's any, anybody who's affected, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's all the, the easy jets and the Ryanairs and all the LCCs that have popped up and, you know, we're flying full, um, you know, and really changing the, you know, changing the landscape of the continent over there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I am concerned. It does seem, a bit irrational. I mean, having said that, you got to be, you know, it, if there's one great lesson of the last century is that you can really go horribly wrong underestimating uh, the, the passion and, uh, and political power of young people. So uh, you got to be careful not to reject it. But on the other hand, you got to push back because there's a lot they don't understand. The very fact that uh, Greta Thunberg um, I believe that's her name, the, uh, the 16 rather year talented, old. the 16-year-old. I think she's very talented at mobilizing sentiment. But, you know, that whole bizarre incident of her going with a yacht to New York to a drive. I mean, I would have understood is that if she'd said, hey, look, we, we just shouldn't travel. Um, we're going to do a video conference here. I think I, that would have been a remarkable moment. And I would have been, I would have been chilled by it, but I would have respected it. But instead, the idea of traveling by a yacht and flying people to operate that yacht, it yep. was just complete ignorance of economics and, and, and carbon footprint and everything like that, just for the sake of optics. I, I was baffled by it. Yeah. So uh, it, <laughs> that, that whole thing is just, that whole thing to me is bizarre. And, and uh, I just have to turn it off 
when I uh, when I see it, it's like Al Gore. It was like Al Gore flying around in his G two. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's just go take the uh, you know, let's go take an old technology airplane and uh, talk. Yeah, you know, fly 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 at five hundred hours a year and, and talk about how we're ruining the environment. Um, yeah, I I get it. So. Yeah, speaking of G, yeah. So speak now. Now we'll shift the gears one more time. Um, yeah, business aviation. We uh, are we flatlined for a while? Are we are we stable? Are we are we going to see some uh, you know, bullish trends, uh, bearish trends? Where do you where do you think the world economy takes Gulfstream and Bombardier and Dassault and Embraer? You know, it's a it's, it's a very funny situation um, since two thousand eight and the great implosion of business aircraft demand um there's two ways to look at it one yeah there was a bit of a recovery the second is if you remove a couple hundred gulfstream 650s from that no there was no recovery in other words the stuff at the top end that cost 75 million that's doing all right everything else has basically stayed exactly in place it never recovered and right now, the discussion is, hey, if there's a world economic downturn, any kind of recession in the U.S., whatever, um, how would that impact an already not very good market? I would argue that, hey, if the market didn't benefit from the economic upturn, why would it get hurt by a downturn? I just think we are where we are. There are other people who I respect who say, no, we're going to get clobbered with a double dip. I, you know, I don't see it, but I understand where that's coming from. I understand the concern. But from the standpoint of the market moving forward, it seems the only thing you can count upon is that people at the very top are still going to have money to spend. And that's why all of the product development cash has been going to those very top product segments. Obviously, at NBAA this year, you had the launch of the Gulfstream 700 to compete with the Global 7500, which also has just arrived. It's all about the stuff at the top. And, and, and the problem, of course, is that as they pump out aircraft at the top, every segment below that kind of feels that pressure of trade-ins right. and cast-downs and whatever. So it could just be that you've got this classic, you know, there's a bunch of mice scaring around while a couple of elephants fight and you hope to avoid the giant pachyderm's feet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw out some numbers there. I'm going to assume a 20% gross margin on a, on a G700. So everyone, they kick out the door. You know, they put on every everyone they kick out the door. It's fifteen million in gross profit on a green on a green airplane. Yeah, sure. And look, I like the fifteen million dollar one better than a you know you know than a a million and a half on a you know ten million dollar you know you know uh, feed on three hundred. Um, you're making making money one point five million bucks at a time if you're Ember Air. That's a pretty tough. Uh, that's a pretty tough slot. Versus Gulfstream, it's you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bigger pro. It, it's always easier at the top. I mean, to make money. That's. I think it's pretty much the the rule of the game. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Both in terms of profit, but also in terms of demand. You know, you're you're not catering to uh, some guy who runs a chain of muffler shops who wants to fly a Cessna between them and is easily crunched himself by, you know, some issue with credit or some issue with the economic downturn. Instead, you're you're competing, you know, at the top with the, the Sultan of Brunei and random shakes and, of course, top uh, Fortune 100 corporations. Uh, that's a very different dynamic. Uh, so not only is it more profitable, but it tends to hold up better. 
uh, yep. when, when the market shifts. And not only that, but, you know, at the very top, you've just got Bombardier and Gulfstream, and that's it, as opposed to uh, at the lower, mar- lower rungs, as you know, that's, that's, that's more of a hornet's nest. It's very crowded down. It's very crowded uh, down there. Do the uh, you know we're a year away, just about a little thirteen months away from the ADSB mandate. Does that uh, does that help the market at all, really, or does you know a lot of airplanes are going to go? A lot of a lot of airplanes are going to come out of service. Does, yeah. Uh, I, does it does it does that increase demand a little bit, or do those people just go to charter and fractional, or uh, what do you yeah what do you what's your crystal ball saying? Well, you know, there are a lot of smart people who've been opining about the impact of ADS and, and what it means. Um, you know, there's a I, something, oh gosh, I don't want to quote the number of something like 20% or 18%, something like that, non-compliant. So there is potential, but you know, I, I tend to err, I tend to think, I tend to put my hat on the side that there might be a bit of a bloodletting in terms of uh, retirements. There's always been sort of this uh, large number of underutilized, rather old aircraft. We used to joke that uh, we, we would take it, we're going to establish a uh, Lockheed Jetstar index. You know, the number of uh, Lockheed Jetstars still flying around out there. Um, and until recently, of the 202 built, um, about half were still, you know, working for some, uh, some I don't know, missionaries in, in West Africa or whatever. <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a very odd situation. So I tend to think there are a lot of that younger know, early hawkers or early, early citations that are kind of waiting to go to the uh, the land of aluminum cans. Um, but of course, there will be opportunities, some replacement, I, not much replacement. I think, yeah, fractional charter and uh, within a bit, an additional bit of last minute retrofit, of course. Yeah. I mean, the MRO, if you're, hey, look at the MRO side of the house, you know, it's boom times for another year. And then once the mandate, you know, once the mandate uh, is up, It'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens to shop capacity. I know if you're an avionics shop now, you're just book solid for the next 13 months. Um, after that, uh, it, it will be very interesting to see where where the industry industry goes in the aftermarket. Sure, feast or famine. Absolutely. What's the uh, you know between commercial, business aviation, defense? What's the what's the one big trend that you think is the most important that we haven't really talked about? Well so many i you know i think the biggest thing well just to quickly touch upon defense don't neglect it because boy i the numbers are fantastic and that's not just true for the f-35 it's also true for the associated munitions and for the many fourth generation aircraft that are out there still in production you know it's go back to the cold war you know the u.s had uh, four production lines um yeah actually uh it it there were plus a bunch of other sort of ancillary, you know, what was the F-117, you know, kind of a production line, but four primary production lines, three of them are around today and they've been joined by a fourth in the F-35. So, you know, the only thing that died after the Cold War was the F-14. Right. 15, 16, 18, still very much in production and uh, actually quite healthy. So the numbers there are terrific. But in terms of the one biggest single trend that I look at and I think about a lot, is China and the jetliner market because it's so important as a growth market and even as a as a current market. You know, last year, 23% of the world's jetliners went to China. They're the single biggest source of third-party finance in jetliner transactions. If we are looking for a split between China and the U.S. and perhaps even the West for political reasons, for trade reasons, for whatever, 
there's going to be a prolonged and profound period of painful adjustment. And that's, that's the thing to watch. This won't play out over a year or two years. There might be momentary hiccups, like Boeing went from rate 14 to rate 12 on the 787 because of the failure of uh, both sides to reach an agreement on a trade deal. Um, it's, aside from stuff like that, I think you're talking about a longer decade of structural readjustment if they are really going to copy the old Soviet Union and go down that path. I hope they don't. Um, I think we're better together. I think the industry would really be hurt by this. But nevertheless, it's the most interesting big picture issue to watch. There's a lot of Chinese money coming into the leasing arena. There really is. It's uh, been that way for some time. And, and uh, you know, those of us who remember back in the early 90s when the Japanese played that role, it was as nothing compared to this. Yeah, I mean, does that help the, uh, does that help the long-term trend? Does that, does, does that sort of keep a, you know, let's just say a decoupling process from really occurring? That's a great question, you know, and on the one hand, yes, it should, because, of course, they've got a financial stake in this Western aviation system. Uh, on the other hand, you know, history is replete with people saying, oh, this can't possibly happen. We're just simply too well integrated. You know, uh, France and Germany, 1914, there's so much trade between them. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, I hope you're right. It makes a lot of sense. But, you know, history is irrational, isn't it? Well, you know, like the whole trade war thing, I think, you know, it, uh, um, the whole trade, yeah, the whole trade war wasn't just started overnight. I mean, there were a lot of CEOs speaking quietly to the White House saying, sure. yeah, look, this is happening. We need to fix it. You know, let, you know, Trump came in and he made a, made a stance and he's, he's taken a lot of, you know, right for right or wrong. He took a stance, and and here we are today. Now things either either you know together we we get the stuff fixed, or together we don't. But it's you know this has been brewing for a decade, and 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 you know the Obama administration and the Bush administration were affected with it too. So, absolutely. Um, you know I think that the you know, protection of IP. I think you know China does need to come to the table with you know, protection of IP and some other stuff. And I, and I think that they'll, you know, as they become more technologically advanced and they're developing their own products, you know, they'll, they'll find religion with that regard too. Um, you know, we're just not there yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you know, it, it's funny, the aviation business, I guess we're sort of a funhouse mirror image of every other part of the economy. We're, we're the weird guys. And uh, th that's certainly, there's never a place where it's more true than with IP. You know, I think you had this weird system where everyone in the aviation business was sort of incentivized to give the Chinese IP because they were able to control it and, you know, say, here's our latest invest from 1987. And uh, as a result, you had, you know, the first Chinese jet, the ARJ-21. Uh, basically, it's, it's a 1987 jet. Uh, there was something that really worked about that. I don't think it did for the rest of the economy. The, the people who make computers and God knows what else were sick and tired of having their IP stolen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think if there's one big thing that comes out of this, yeah, once again, if, you know, I think theft of IP, yeah, and trade barriers, it's it's two things that everybody needs to come into agreement on. And, and, and if you can get there, everything else is simple. But, uh, you yeah, know, it's, it, uh, it's just getting there. It's going to be a slog for the next year. 
Yeah. If the, yeah. Patient, uh, if the patient can just take one giant two foot, 30 pound pill, uh, he'll be cured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Hey, so we've been on 45 minutes and I, I think it's a, it's, it's probably a great stepping off point, but uh, will you come back and we, we come back in a couple months and we can, we can pick up the conversation and talk about the next trends in 2020. Oh, that would be my pleasure. Really great to talk uh, about the uh, the world's greatest industry. Thank you. Richard, thank you for coming on. I love reading your stuff in uh, Aviation Week. It's always spot on. Um, I love the expertise uh, you're giving about the industry and, and, uh, and all the business magazines and uh, just really enjoyed having you on today. Thank you. How do people get in touch with you? You can read uh, everything I write publicly uh, get links to everything I, I write, and uh, and of course, uh, find a point of contact at www.richardabulafia.com. Perfect. Thanks, Richard, once again. No, it's very much my pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me on.